This message was recorded live at Elevate Church in Erie, Pennsylvania. As followers of Christ, we follow a God who was crucified, dead, buried, got up, walked out of the tomb, demonstrating that there's nothing that you and I can't walk out of. He doesn't love me based on my performance. God loves me based on my position. It matters so much that we imitate Christ and we live out those principles. There's nothing that you could do. There's there's no great sin that you could have ever committed that would be a barrier between you and Jesus. To learn more about Elevate, how you can get connected, or how you can support the work that Elevate is doing in Erie, visit elevateerie.tv. Thank you. Well, in my hometown of Texas now, I used to live in Ohio, but in my hometown of Texas, um, if I were to respond to that kind of warm reception, I might say, thank you, you all. Yeah, that's how we do it in Texas. So how did I land here today? This is by divine providence. You know, I always tell people every weekend, wherever I'm speaking, when I preached for 21 years at Cedar Creek, I said, you know, you weren't here by chance. You were here by divine providence. God knew when he formed you together in your mother's womb that you would be here today and for a reason. And so uh, the way that I got here, I want to kind of uh, give you the story. And some of you have heard bits and pieces of this story, but um, really it all began about uh, the year 2014. Actually, it was 2012. When I had walked out on the platform at Cedar Creek Church, I know some of you, again, have heard this, so stay with me. Some, probably most of you are new and haven't heard this, but I walked out on the platform at Cedar Creek Church like I had done hundreds of times before, hundreds. And I started to, to talk, but I couldn't talk. I couldn't get a word out. It, my, it was my mouth, it was froze. And my legs, I felt like they were planted in cement because I looked back in the steps and I thought, I'm, I'm gonna run. Because this is embarrassing. I, I, don't, I can't say anything. My heart was racing. I literally could not open my mouth. And so then finally I got a word out and a second word out and a third word and a fourth word. And the people on the front row were probably relieved. And then I got through the sermon, which I thought was a terrible sermon. I walked out in the lobby and I did my you know, normal greeting of people. I thought, do I really want to do this to myself? And, and uh, so I walk out in the lobby and I had people come up to me and say, say Pastor Lee, that was one of the emotional, most emotional, most powerful sermons you've ever given. And I said, if you only knew, if you only knew. That began actually a series of symptoms. Well, let me tell you what happened with that one. So I couldn't speak, uh, go to see a doctor because it, it reoccurred. It happened to me two or three times. And it even got to where I'd go into a meeting, a meeting with 15 to 20 people. And I, my life was about meetings leading a church like that. I, I would have the same kind of symptoms. I would have to excuse myself. Say, I have to use the restroom. I'm not feeling well. And so this went on and on. So the doctors, of course, put me on medication. Saying, well, it's just anxiety. It's, you know, it's in your family and you're going to have to deal with it. And so um, I was on medication for a couple years. And then I started experiencing these other symptoms, like my right hand started shaking, like you'll see it today shake sometimes. And I'm not waving to you. Um, it's part of a disease that I have. Um, and then I started experiencing depression and even suicidal thoughts. That's pretty scary for a pastor. It just tells you, you know, we're real people and we have the same challenges that you have. So I had these suicidal thoughts, depression, bladder problems, which you probably don't want to know the details of that, <laughs> and um, a whole host of other symptoms. And finally, my doctor said, you have Parkinson's. So he sends me to the Cleveland Clinic. I get tested there. And he says, you have Parkinson's. 
And so I had studied up a little bit when my doctor told me you have Parkinson's, you know, you get online, which you shouldn't do before you go to see the specialist, but I did. And um, so by the time I get to him, you know, I'm, I'm like, oh, what's he going to tell me? And so I asked him the question. I said, so I have Parkinson's now. How long do I have to live? Because isn't that the question you want answered? And he said, well, that's not the right question. The right question is, what's your quality of life going to be? And I said, okay, well, what's my quality of life going to be? And, you know, give it to me straight. And he said, well, probably you'll have a good quality of life for about 15 years. He said, but it's all ambiguous. We really don't know for sure because it's different for everybody. All right, thanks. So, but we've got this 15-year target now. My wife and I are thinking, well, we're, not, we're probably not going to have the golden years, but maybe we can have some silver years, so to speak. But how are we going to do it? Because we only have 15 years, really, is what the doctor's telling me, for us to have a quality of life experience. And so our kids, by divine providence, four of our five adult children had moved to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, all for different reasons. Is that cool? All for different reasons. And so for us, it was a no-brainer. We're going to leave Cedar Creek Church, which I planted and founded and 21 years old, and the church was 21 years old. Uh, the, the church um, meant so much to me, but it was easy to leave because we wanted to spend the last 15 years with our kids and grandkids, of which there are five adult children and nine grandchildren. And so we packed it up and moved to Dallas-Fort Worth, where we live now. But, you know, my idea of utopia while it was being with my kids and grandkids, it was not babysitting my grandkids 24-7. Now, my wife, she's very happy being where she's at, and I am too, but I needed something to do, and I wanted to stay connected to the church because I believe the church is the hope of the world. When I say I think the church is the hope of the world, it's not the church that's the hope of the world. It's the fact that the church is stewarding the message of Jesus Christ, who is indeed the hope of the world. And without Christ, people are without hope. And so I decided I'm going to stay involved in the church as much as I can. And Colby already mentioned Leadership Network. Leadership Network is an organization that was started by a man by the name of Bob Buford. And the short story goes like this. Bob Buford had come to a place in his life at about the age of 40. He had made his fortune. His goal in life was to make millions and millions of dollars. By the time he's 40, he did. So he sold a couple companies. One was a television cable company. And he parlayed that money into a nonprofit organization, some $80 million he invested to do what? To help pastors, to help high-impact pastors. Because he saw that there was this potential exponential growth by helping these pastors. He too thought the church was the hope of the world. This was just one man. He wrote a book called Halftime. Some of you may be familiar with it, where he talks about really thinking about your life and, you know, the second half of your life. And what are you going to do with it? Colby is a high-impact pastor. Leadership Network is investing in him. I'm investing in him by being here. And we, we know each other through other routes as, as well. But um, one, one of the things that when you visit a church like Elevate, by the way, you are the exception. You're not the norm. I'm not saying you're abnormal. What I'm saying is, is you are the exception. This is, you know, don't take it for granted what's happening here. This is absolutely unique. But one of the things you always find in a church like Elevate that's doing so well, that's winning people to Christ, that's growing people up in Christ, that's reaching people who formerly had no relationship with Christ or even a connection to the church. One thing you always find is a fantastic leader behind the scenes. Or I shouldn't say behind the scenes, but up front. Good music, yeah. Good kids programs, yes. All those things are very important. But you always find this fantastic leader. And Colby, by the way, if you, if you don't know this by now, you know this. He's funny. He, he, he is a funny guy. In fact, um, we went on a cruise together 
And now some of you are going, oh, cruise. Pastors go on a cruise. Oh, they get to spend our money on a cruise. It's not like that, okay? Here's how it went. So Leadership Network has this group of individuals who say, we believe pastors should take respite, time off, because they're terrible at doing that. And so basically, these two gentlemen who have a lot of resources said, we're going to use some of our money to invest in pastors to send them for on respite, on a retreat. And so they approached me and said, would you pick out five couples to take and just, you know, hang out with them? There's really no requirement other than have a couple, you know, questions that you're going to talk on. And so we went on a cruise together. It paid. Was that cool or, or what? And so, um, you know, this is a picture of Colby, um, you know, on the cruise there. Um, so there's... Um, now, you know, I think Kristen I'm sure, married him for his humor because it wasn't for his looks, for sure. Now, I can say that. You guys can't. You guys, I can. All right, so here's what I'm here to say to you this weekend. This is why I'm here, and that is pastors need to be encouraged. Even strong leaders need encouragement. They may act like they don't, but they do. They not only need to be encouraged, the Bible says they should be honored. Not only should they be honored, the Bible says they should be given double honor. So today I want to talk to you about how to honor your pastor. And this isn't one of those talks, I know when you hear that title, how to honor my pastor. That's what it's going to be about? I thought it was going to be about me and you were going to help me live my life and you know, mend my heart. Well, there's times for that. But you know what the Bible says, don't you? It's not about you. It's about him. I'm not talking about Colby. I'm talking about God. It's about him, and it's about his son. It's about the church, which is the hope of the world, because it's stewarding the message of Jesus Christ. And your pastor, he, he should be honored. The Bible's clear about this. By the way, this is one of those sermons that Colby can't give for himself. Be a little bit self-serving if he stood up here and said, you need to honor me. Um, I thought when I, uh, Colby used the word retired and do not use the word retired with my wife because she grows fangs if you do. Uh, That was supposed to be funny. The point was, you know, she's saying to me, you're not, you're not slowing down and I'm trying to figure that out. But um, the point that I was getting, what was the point I was getting to? I'm having a Parkinson's moment. Oh yeah, I was talking about honoring your pastor and um, that it's, it's not about us. And, and then that, um, that I had these, I have on a flash drive, I have every sermon that I have ever written. And so I thought I would never have to write another sermon. I've got hundreds of sermon on this little flash drive. I can just plug it in, pop one up and you know, change it here and there and I have a sermon. But then when Colby and I started talking about this weekend, I thought, I've never preached on Hebrews chapter 13, our text today, out of the scripture. I've never preached on it because it would have been self-serving for me to preach on it, to stand up here and say, honor me, respect me. And so, Colby, I want to thank you for inviting me here and having to write a new sermon. really appreciate that. (laughs) Next time, we'll think of something I can pull out of the archives. All right, so... um, this, uh, if you, I don't know, you know, if you use Bibles around here when you're, I mean, of course you use Bibles, but you use Bibles, your phone, is it, they allowed to turn their phones on? Okay, you can turn your phone on or whatever it is you use. But first of all, I want to paraphrase, 
the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 13, you can follow along on, you're not gonna see all this on the screen. You'll see a couple verses here in a few minutes. But let me just paraphrase Hebrews chapter 13. And Hebrews chapter 13, we're not really sure who wrote it, who was the author of Hebrews in the New Testament. And the New Testament, of course, you know, is made up of the Gospels, which is the storyline about Jesus Christ, and then a number of what are called epistles. They're letters where the apostles appointed by Jesus himself write to the church. Now, this particular letter, we're not really sure who the author is. Some people say it's the Apostle Paul. I believe it's him, and so we'll just go with that. But Paul had this way of writing. This is one of the reasons why I believe this was his letter. He had this way of writing where he would write about one or two very serious, heavy theological topics, and then he would do a wrap-up paragraph where he might cover 10 things, 10 subjects, which gets a little kind of confusing because you just read, you know, where he, he takes two or three subjects and he takes them very deep, and then he goes, oh, and by the way, do this, do this, do this, do this, 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 and he goes down this list, you're like, whoa, let's stop the first one, I gotta, I gotta deal with the first one. And so in, in the wrap-up, here's some of the things that Paul covers, or whoever the writer to the Hebrews were, and this is his wrap-up, love each other, show hospitality to each other, show hospitality to strangers. He said, by the way, some in doing so have entertained angels. Doesn't that make you want to go find a stranger and entertain him? Because that's, that's cool. And then he writes, also remember people in prison, and then he says, identify with their pain. And then married couples, don't commit adultery. Hold your marriage in high regard. And then, then he says, oh, by the way, God will never leave you or forsake you. And this is just like all of these things he's, he's closing out with. Spiritual fidelity, stay, stay faithful to God. Love him with all your heart. And then he talks about the grace of God. And let me remind you about the grace of God, that you're not saved, you're not put in right relationship with God by the things you do, but rather by the grace of God, by what Jesus Christ has done for you on a cross. And then he talks about looking at the world that we live in as a temporary place. It's only, you know, it's gonna be gone. And then there's eternity, which is forever. And so we need to get it right. We need to get right with God and give our lives to Christ. And we, we just have, it's, this life is but a vapor. And then he closes out there by talking about doing good and sharing with others what you have. Okay, so that was the wrap-up, except I left two things out. Actually, the same thing mentioned twice. And when you're wrapping something up and you mention one thing twice, what does that say about it? It's, it's an emphasis. He's emphasizing it. And it has to do with pastors, the local pastor, the pastor that was pastoring the people that he was writing to. And it pertains to all pastors. Here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. And this is what we want to start taking note of here. Remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow the example of their faith. Remember, in the word remember, it has this idea too of it's not just remembering. It's remembering with fondness. It's remembering with appreciation. I remember the first pastor that I heard speak that I actually understood. I mean, I'd gone to church as a kid by force when I'd go to my grandmother's church. My parents didn't go to church at all. And I, I had no idea what the pastor was saying. It was all over my head. But I remember sitting in a church for the first time after I'd given my life to Christ. And I'm listening to this pastor teach. And I was just in awe. I was always on the edge of the seat. I was on the front pew at that time. And I can remember it to this day, what, what it did to my heart. And here's the amazing thing. It still does it today. 
And I've, I've been a pastor 26 years. I've been up preaching like I am now. And yet when I'm sitting where you're sitting, I attend a church in Dallas-Fort Worth area. When I sit there and I listen to the pastor teach, I'm, I'm, I'm just amazed that the word of God continues to fill my heart and flood my heart and give me joy in my life and direction. What about you? Do you remember? Are you, do you, I mean, you have a teacher here who's filling your heart and inspiring you week after week after week after week. Do you remember him throughout the week? Do you pray for him? Do you think of the good that comes from his life? Do you follow the example of his faith? All right. So here's, that's one thing that was mentioned. And then the apostle Paul, if he's the writer to Hebrews, he writes this also as well. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Now, Brace yourself when you hear this word. This is really bothersome, especially for we in the Western culture, we in America. Brace yourself. You ready? Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. That feels bad. That feels to me like, oh, here we go. This is like cult city just waiting to happen. Pretty soon, Colby's going to have us drinking the same juice. I mean, it's just this word obey. So there, there, there's this instant pushback. There's a guy that, um, a friend of mine that I used to sit with when I lived in Toledo. Um, I lived, when we started the church in Perrysburg, Ohio, which is just a suburb of, of Toledo. We lived in Woodville, Ohio, which was 45 minutes away. And so I wanted to get into town every day when we were starting the church and, and stay there. So I positioned myself at a counter at a Bob Evans restaurant so I didn't take up a lot of space. And I'd sit there and I'd meet a lot of people. And one guy in particular Ken is his first name, and he wouldn't mind me sharing this if I shared it publicly. But Ken, I was, I've been trying to win to Christ for now 21 years. Still haven't won him to Christ. And one time he just finally said to me, he said, you know, Lee, the problem is, that here's the real problem. Because I said, Ken, just you know, get to the quick, man. Cut to the quick. Tell me, what is it that's keeping you back? Because you're reading the scripture, and you agree with all the scripture that I show you. What's the deal? He said, I just feel like I'm just going to become this mindless crazy, man. I'm going to give away all my money. I'm going to move to, you know, Africa and be a missionary. I don't know. I don't want to be out of control. But when we're talking about obeying your leader, we're not talking about living a life out of control. We'll talk about what that looks like. We read on in verse 17. Now this is sobering. Their work, Colby's work, is to watch over your soul's and get this, they're accountable. He's accountable to God for your soul. That's deep. Give them reason to do this with joy. Him, give him reason to do it with joy, not with sorrow. That would certainly not be to your benefit. I mean, that, just hang on that thought for a moment. Pastors are accountable for the soul's of the individuals that they pastor. And frankly, the indication seems to be theologians would say souls whom they have not reached. What a burden to carry. And the Bible then says, now here's the me part for you. You know, I said, it's not about us, it's about him. But here's the me part. It seems to me that the scripture is saying is there some benefit to you when you obey your spiritual leader when you encourage him, when you get behind the vision and mission that he sets, sets before you, it seems to be there's this benefit because the flip side is it's not good for you if 
you cause him something other than joy in the process. So, so let's talk very practically about how to honor your pastor. Again, um, a pastor couldn't do this for himself, but I can, I can do it. I can do it for him. Understand his role and responsibilities. Everyone wants to be understood, but here's what happens with a pastor. There are unmet expectations people have because they stereotype and they, they, they put a, um, this template, their template when they were growing up, or just even some people who haven't grown up in the church, they have this idea of the role of the pastor, which would go like this. The role of the pastor, his responsibility is to marry people, to carry them along in life, and to bury them. Marry them, carry them, and bury them. Where's that in the Bible? I'm not saying uh, a pastor shouldn't do weddings. I'm not saying a pastor shouldn't carry people along. I'm not saying a pastor shouldn't bury people. Col- Colby just did a terrible, a terribly uh, difficult funeral with somebody from your, who had attended your church. A grandmother and her 13-year-old granddaughter burned to death. So what I'm gonna say next, you know, it's not that, it's not that he doesn't do those things, he does, but as the church grows and he needs to lead according to what the Bible calls him, the way the Bible calls him to lead, um, he's gonna do less of those things as he turns those responsibilities over to others. In fact, you know what the Bible says? This you're not gonna see come up, but it says pastors are given to equip the saints, which are you, that's you, you didn't know you were a saint. If you know Christ, you're a saint. To do what? The work of ministry. What is the work of ministry? It, weddings, funerals, caring for people. That's, that's ministry. Pastors are to equip you for ministry. And what's their primary role? Soul care. What's that look like? Winning people to Christ. So they live in eternity. And then growing them up in Christ. You could call it soul preservation. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Listen to what Jesus said. These are some of his final words. And this is, you could say, deathbed words, so to speak. But he had been crucified. Uh, no, and he had not been crucified yet when he said this. Or had he been crucified? Had he been crucified when he said these words, Colby? No, yes. That's a pretty bad one. I, I'm having this brain leak here. Okay, so anyways, here's what he said. He had been crucified. I'm sure of it. Double check me. Matthew 20, 19, and 20. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. These are his final words. Yes, he'd been crucified. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this is the commission to the church, but it's the pastor who is to lead it. Make disciples. What does it mean to make a disciple? A convert, a follower? See, some people think to make a disciple is to make this sort of fully orb mature individual. Well, really the word disciple there is simply follower. It doesn't have this qualitative effect or this you know, qualitative uh, you know, aspect to it. It's, it's just make a disciple a follower. Then here's where the quality part comes in. Here's where discipleship occurs. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this, I'm with you even to the end of the age. And so that is Colby's primary responsibility is to make sure the church is fulfilling the Great Commission. I had a guy one time ask me, sitting at the counter of a restaurant, he said, so I know what you do on Sunday. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. He said, well, I said, I do it on Saturday too. I preach on Saturday and Sunday at Cedar Creek. He goes, okay. So I know what you do on Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> I knew it was coming. He goes, 
What, what do you do Monday through Friday? I'm curious. Now, I was ready for this question because I'd been asked so many times and I got tongue-tied. So I said, well, um, let's see, I spend about 15 to 20 hours a week on a message, which I happen to be preparing right now, and like this message. And then I said, I spend another 15 hours a week in strategic meetings. And then I said, and then I spend time leading 100 staff and leading a congregation of eight to 9,000 and then trying to win the world of Christ and I'm accountable for their souls. That's what I do. Do you know there are only 2,000 churches over 2,000 in attendance? Now, does that mean anything to you? Well, there are 440,000 churches in America. Only 2,000 of them are over 2,000 in attendance, and they're growing at a rate of 5% a year. So that's about, what, 10 churches a year at 2,000. You guys will be in that number very soon. Already you're in an infinitesimal percentage of churches at your size. What's that mean? It takes fantastic leaders. It takes really good leaders to lead these kinds of churches. Don't take it for granted. Colby's the exception. Listen to what Paul says to this younger pastor, Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 17. He says, elders, pastors, who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. Now relax, I'm not gonna talk about a salary here. We're not talking about that. But this emphasis on preaching and teaching, what, what does that have to do? Well, theologians disagree uh, to some extent on what that means exactly, but it's preaching and teaching. It has this idea in it, whereas teaching is me standing up and teaching you, and you can stand in a classroom of 10 people and I can teach you, but to inspire you and to lead you on up over the next hill, that's to preach. And when they can teach and preach and get you on mission, the mission that they're on, they're worthy of double honor. What about caring? Well, what about caring? Does this mean Colby, I'm suggesting Colby shouldn't be caring for people? I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that as a leader, he's to make sure people are cared for. You know, there'll always be a shortage in the church of there's gonna be needs going unmet. You know, Jesus predicted that. Matthew 9, 37, Jesus made this statement. He said, the harvest is plentiful. Plentiful, there are plenty of people, but the workers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest send work, sends workers out into the field. So there'll always be this shortage of people, and so Colby's responsibility as a pastor is to rally people to the cause of Christ, which is that soul care, which in that process includes caring for people, caring for the sick, and this kind of idea we have of ministry. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 12 through 13. Listen to this, take note of this. Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peacefully with each other. All right, let's move on. We talked about how to honor your pastor by understanding his roles and responsibilities and then understand his unique pressures. Every job has its pressures, every job. Imagine first responders. I mean, you know, they're the people that are running into buildings that are on fire. They're, the, they're running into buildings where there's people shooting guns out and you know, the rest of us run out. They run in towards the danger. I mean, that's a pressure, that's a stressful job. 
all of your jobs have unique stresses. But let me just share with you the unique stresses of a pastor. Again, some people think that to work at a church is like, it is the, it's like, oh, everybody just sits around and sings kumbaya. You know, there's no pressure. There's no, there's no static. There's no pushback. Everybody gets along. We love each other. And so there's nobody talks behind anybody's back. All the employees work super hard. Although we've got a great team here. Soul care. You remember Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17? Accountable to God for people's souls. That's a unique responsibility. I don't even fully understand it. Would you like to be accountable? So not only for your own soul, you see, and, and when we stand before God, before the judgment throne of God, we're gonna be judged by the blood of Christ, which means we're gonna be seen as sinless by God. I know that to be true. But then also there's this mention, uh, the, the apostle Paul writes, the Bible talks about these crowns that we're gonna receive in heaven. And so there's some kind of rewards that we're gonna receive and there's some kind of an accounting that we're gonna have to give. I don't know what, what, it, what it is exactly, but pastors are gonna have to give account for people's souls, not just their own, but yours. That ought to make every pastor just run out of the door. Say, I'm responsible for all these guys? Yes, you, you're, you're accountable. For, for some people's salvation, and then this word we use, sanctification, which is the process of growing people up and helping them become mature in Christ. I mean, that is a heavy load to carry, a heavy load. I, um, this was just before I was leaving. So I left Cedar Creek Church in November to go to Texas, and it was a couple months before I was leaving. We were transitioning my successor, who, um, by the way, <laughs> I, I had to tell, a little pause here to tell you a little story about my successor. Um, so I go back to Cedar Creek a few months ago to give a talk, and um, um, I had somebody, well, first of all, what I said to the church is, I said, you know, I'm so excited for you guys. I mean, you're doing so well. I just... Because a lot of times when a founding pastor leaves, churches typically drop 20% in attendance, 20% in giving, and it, it can be devastating. I said, but you guys are doing so well. You know, you're, you're just, you're doing it differently. And I said, you're doing really well. And then I said, and I'm glad you're doing well, but did you have to be doing so well? <laughs> I was in line at a grocery store, and this lady sees me and, uh, when I was in town there, and she, you know, she says, Pastor Lee, we miss you so much. And I said, well, thank you very much. But of course, Ben's a great guy. And she goes, oh, oh, Ben's my favorite all-time pastor. <laughs> By the way, that's something else pastors put up with. People say things they should not. Um, so here's, here's the thing about um, what's uni these unique pressures. So we have these unique pressures, this, this responsibility for people's souls. And then... There's this confusion in life too, and the confusion is this. It's hard for us to separate our friends from our brothers and sisters in Christ, from our congregation, from our employees. I mean, is, you know, who, who are Colby's friends in the church? If you have friends in the church, like my wife and I had some great friends in the church, I was also their boss, or I was their pastor. And that gets a little confusing, and so, What's their motive behind things? I mean, in church, in church, um, I worked in the marketplace for 13 years for a Fortune 500 company, and we released people when they needed to be released. And if somebody got let go, you know, you'd say, man, it's too bad that Betty got let go. I feel bad for her. And then you forgot about Betty in a week. 
But in the church, you let somebody go, and what happens? Their spouse comes in crying in the office, asking you why you let their husband go. That never happens in the marketplace. I never had a person come, a person's spouse come in and say, why'd you release my husband, or why'd you release my spouse? But in the church, that happens. Why? Because, because I'm this person's pastor as well. And so it all just sort of merges together, and it's hard for us to separate in our heads. People, um, people, it, it's so easy for people to criticize pastors. I'm not sure what, that, what that's about. But these people who you thought you were your friends, let me give you a couple examples. This was a friend. I had a friend who wrote me a letter after I released a relative of his. And he wrote to me and he said, there's blood on your hands and I'll watch Cedar Creek collapse under your leadership because you're a fraud. That felt really good. <laughs> Another woman wrote, a woman who um, I pastored her grandchildren and I thought everything was fine until we didn't do a banquet that she wanted to do that she'd done for years. And next thing I know, there's a letter in the mailboxes of all the leaders in the church that says, since Lee came to the church, the Holy Spirit has departed. People say some pretty strong things. And then when you speak about money as a pastor, that's like talking about murder. Or like you're, you know, you've done something equivalent to murder. So there are these other pressures too about, you know, we feel this responsibility to grow the church because that's reaching souls, lost souls. And then, then, then when we do grow the church, how do we measure a person's heart? How do we know if they're really growing in Christ? And then there's the money pressures and then, you know, trying to raise up uh, people to serve. Like Jesus said, that there would always be pressure. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into the field. And then there's the loneliness that pastors often feel, not always, but at times, because they don't, who do they tell? Like we, people have mentoring groups and we tell each other things, but then once the pastor tells, you know, like, you know, I'm struggling with this and then it's risky. You know what I did? I paid a professional counselor because they are paid to keep their mouth shut. So to help clear things up in my head, I paid a pastor or a counselor. And then what about the pressure of expectation? This is one this is one that gets people. So they come in with these expectations. They say, the pastor is going to care for me. He's going to be my personal caretaker. And when there's a crisis in life, he will be there. And he may or may not be. And as the church grows larger, he can't be everywhere at the same time. And it's like um, Moses in the Old Testament. I heard somebody ask um, a guy recently about a church, church I attend. They said, so what's your um, model of leadership? And he said, the Bible. And the person that was with me said, no, 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 like, I, I know that, you know, but I mean, what's your structure? He goes, the Bible. And it's pretty simple when you read about Moses who was just, just way over his head and he's trying to lead all these people and he had so many people coming to him and couldn't get it done and his, his um, father-in-law Jethro came to him and said, Moses, um, this, he said, basically he said, you are nuts, man. And so he divided it up, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, and leaders of 10. And so... Um, um, th that was the, um, that was how he handled that. Anyways, um, let me uh, share with you too uh, uh, this expectation that created a conversation that I will share with you. 
and it went like this. I got an email from a lady and she said, Lee, um, as I write this, I'm really disturbed and I want you to know I'm probably gonna leave the church. I'm so upset about this. If this is a reflection on the rest of the pastors at Cedar Creek Church, then I'm leaving for sure. And here's what happened. She was coming out of a Target store and when she came out of this Target store, this young man who was on our staff, who she knew because he was up on the stage speaking often, he, his shoulder apparently bumped her shoulder. And he didn't say it was sorry. He just kept going. And so she said, I'm horrified. Is that what the rest of the pastors are like? So normally I would, letters like that, I would kind of soft pedal and try to woo her back. But I was in a moody day. <laughs> and so I wrote something else. And what I said to her is I said, you need to know that it's people like you or people who think like you who cause a tremendous dropout rate for pastors. You know what Ben was doing? By the way, Ben, that's who it was. He's my successor. He's leading Cedar Creek now. He was on his way to get diapers for his wife. He was on a mission. You know when a man's on a mission for his wife? They're pretty focused. And when I would go to the store for my wife, I was, this was before cell phone days, I was just terrified I was gonna get the wrong diaper. You know what I mean? There's like, you go to the diaper row and it's like, <laughs> I know what she said. I can't take a picture. There was no cell phones, you know, in those days. So Ben is on a mission to get these diapers and he goes through the door and apparently rubs shoulders with this gal. When I talked to Ben about it, he said, Lee, I don't even remember. I'll, I'll write her a letter apologizing. I said, eh, you could do that, but I'd probably ruin that <laughs> for you. <ya. laughs> Probably lost one to Cedar Creek on that one. Understand his responsibilities. Understand his unique pressures. Understand that pastors, I mean, here's, here's what we're up against. Everybody that comes through the doors, we're trying to convert from consumers where they're saying, feed me, give me, help me, serve me, to how can I serve others? How can I serve the Great Commission? How can I serve you, pastor? Understanding his unique pressures. The world is on our shoulders, we feel like. I was um, in a meeting. It was one of the final meetings with um, the executive team. And by that time, I was just letting Ben run the meetings for the most part, and I was just watching. And I'm watching him diagram some things on a whiteboard. And I thought, man, he's smart. He's a smart guy. I said, I'm glad we, we hired him. In my mind, I'm saying this. And then as he was diagramming this problem on the, on the mark board, I thought, that, that's a hard job. And I thought, I, I had the job for 21 years. I know it was a hard job. And then in a moment, and listen, I don't get, I don't have very many spiritual, hyper-spiritual experiences or obvious spiritual experiences or physical spiritual experiences, but here's what happened in that moment. In the Bible, there's a man named Elijah and another one named Elisha. And one is the senior prophet and one we'll call a junior prophet. And the senior prophet hands off his responsibility to the junior prophet. There's this exchange, there's this exchange of the anointing of God. And in this meeting, as I sat there and I'm watching Ben and I thought about, I used to do that job. I think that's where God laid his hand on him, so to speak, and commissioned him as the pastor. It wasn't in the meeting we had a few weeks later publicly. It was right there. Because here's what happened to me. 
I instantly, I mean, like that, weight was lifted, physical, literal weight lifted off my shoulders. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I got chills running through my body. I go downstairs. I leave the meeting. I go down in my car and I cried. And I didn't cry because I was leaving Cedar Creek. You know what I cried about? I realized the weight I'd been carrying for 21 years or whatever the number of years were of late, I couldn't possibly have carried by myself. That was the awareness I had. I couldn't have done this by myself. The tremendous weight, the load. Worried about people's souls. And I don't carry that weight anymore. But your pastor does. By the way, our jobs, they're easy. I just, I'm just contradicting everything I just said. This is a paradox. We love our job. Colby loves his job. We, we have the best jobs on the planet because we get to tell people about Jesus Christ. We, get to, we have the story of all stories. We get to inspire people to live their lives for Christ and to win people to Christ. We have the best jobs on the planet. It has its unique pressures. It has its roles and responsibilities. It has its confusing moments. It has the weight, it's the weight of the world on our shoulders. What can you do? Well, one thing you can certainly do is get in the game. And understand his role and responsibilities to equip you for the work of ministry. So all of you should be thinking about the work of ministry, doing the work of ministry. What's the work of ministry God has called you to? But here's lastly what I want to leave you with. And I want to leave the church with a challenge. I didn't ask Colby's permission to do this, but I'm sure he's fine with this. He's wondering what this is going to be now. And that is pray for him. And I cannot overstate this or overemphasize this, pray for him and Kristen. Pray for him. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18. Paul wraps up that wrap up by saying this. Oh, pray for us, for our conscience is clear and we want to live honorably in everything we do. So Paul is saying, pray that we're gonna have this clear conscience, that we're gonna do the right thing. Because we need, we, I mean, if I'm thinking this. If Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, if he's the writer of Hebrews, if he needs people to pray for him, I need people to pray for me, you need people to pray for you, and Colby needs people to pray for him. But here's what I would say to do is take the 20-day challenge. Take this challenge, think about it, write it down. Don't leave here without thinking about it. Put it in your phone, put it on a piece of paper. And then for the next 20 days, pray at dinner when you pray together, pray at lunch when you pray together, pray at night when you put, tuck your kids in. Where, whenever it is you pray silently together, pray for Colby and Kristen. And what I would say is, um, why does like a 50-year-old man start to cry? That's just weird. Um, what I would say is this. Um, if you pray for them, if your whole church is praying for them, he's gonna have a good month and a good year. And, and I think it will do something to his soul, which ultimately is good for you. Because when he's doing well, you're doing well. There's a benefit to you. He's the exception. You have a great leader. You have a fantastic leader. Pray for him. Remember him. Remember his family. Can I pray, Colby? All right. Colby, can you come up here? Would you do that? I know this is a little out of, this is spontaneous and we didn't plan this, but...
I'd like to pray for you. All right, God, this, uh, this man, um, he's meant a lot to me. He's been an encouragement to me as I've watched him. He's an inspiration, and we tell the story all over the country. And I pray that um, the congregation responds to him with great respect and, and honor, um, not to put him on a pedestal that he cannot live up to, to see him as a man, just a man, but a man whose heart is for God and a man whose heart is for winning people to Christ. And we ask this in Christ's name. And would you do me a favor? I don't know where this is at in the service, but would you stand up and just give him a rousing, yay, God, thank you very much. Would you do that? We're always encouraged to know that God is using Elevate to bless people's lives. If you have a story about how God is working in your life, share your story online at elevateerie.tv.